This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, another week of so many headlines related to the virus. It is such a pleasure, as always, to catch up with Dr. Ian Lesbader, our soothsayer, our truth teller, our guy who really helps us understand where we're going and where we are. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU's Lango Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Ian, how are you? Hi. Uh, happy Friday. Hag Sameh. Hope everyone is doing well. Uh, we are uh, so far thriving, but seeing lots of patients and uh, and seeing some long haulers and some COVID patients as well. So uh, we are not uh, out of the woods just yeah. yet. So let's talk about that. I mean, what is the reality check for this area that we all live in, specifically the New York City area I'm talking about? Like, where are we right now? We see hotspots reported, but you you are quite literally, Ian, on the front lines. Uh, tell me more about what you're seeing. So, uh, you know, we're definitely seeing uh, an increase in cases. And I think whenever you see hotspots, you know, the danger is that uh, extending into other areas of uh, of the community. We're certainly seeing in the Midwest as well, not just in, in New York City, some hot spots, but throughout the country. So I think until we are all able to get a preventative medicine uh, or until uh, monoclonal antibody infusions are widely available, uh, we really have to resort to the old traditional uh, infectious disease controls of, you know, mask wearing, even though we know that's not 100% effective, and social distancing. And uh, last week we talked about uh, some in the in the more religious community, and uh, it is important that everyone follow, you know, follow the guidelines. Mm-hmm. There is no uh, problem. There's no um, conflict between religion and spirituality and uh, good good health and, and science. All religions really emphasize uh, healthy behavior, and, and uh, uh, this is just part of that for the time being. So there should be no conflict uh, with being uh, observant in, in the way you feel is appropriate and also doing um, uh, good behavior for the community. Right. I mean, I feel like that's been one common theme um, in that we've talked about, you know, it's it's the whole virus is all about a sense of community. It's protecting others. I mean, you want to protect yourself, of course, but you really have to think about that's what mask wearing is ultimately uh, about. When you look at, though, what's going on around the country, I think I was kind of thrown when I was watching some some programs, some news programs, and they were showing a map of the country and showing where we're seeing increases in cases, and it was almost blanketed across the country. So is this kind of the second wave that we've all been talking about? Is this the beginning of it? Yes, I think that is the the case. You know, we certainly saw a drop in the number of cases, and really around the world, we're seeing, you know, these second waves. And unfortunately, if you look at uh, even back to 1918, the Spanish flu, you know, these viral infections do come in waves. They do mutate a bit. 
uh, people do develop some slowly but surely herd herd immunity. Uh, and again, the idea is to kind of uh, flatten the curve. You know, no one ever said we're going to completely stop cases, uh, but if you're able to decrease hospital surging by wearing masks and um, you know, using uh, prudent behavior, that will kind of protect the healthcare system so that people who need ventilators or people who are sicker can be admitted and, and there's, uh, you know, more reserve in the system. So I think we are seeing the second wave. We're seeing it really around the world. It's, uh, this has happened in prior pandemics. Um, and I think we have to continue uh, certainly to be prudent. So, Ian, I have a feeling that you've been getting a lot of phone calls and texts and and emails from friends, family, patients about everything we've seen over the last week or so, especially with the treatment of the president around various drugs. We count on you to separate the signal from the noise. What do we need to know about what we've learned, especially in terms of therapeutics over the last few days? So uh, not everyone gets the same treatment as uh, as the president, but I think he had a very aggressive regimen, and I think actually a very smart regimen. Um, it's certainly something that uh, it would be great to offer uh, many patients, and really all of these medications work in different ways, just like we do HIV cocktails or hepatitis C cocktails, where we have several medications that work slightly differently for the viruses in combination they can be highly effective and i think you know the president is is a good example you know he was in a high risk group being uh male uh older uh overweight and there are other risk factors that other people have high blood pressure diabetes lung disease um kidney disease, you know, that we all know about. And I think that's also why our death rate or our case fatality rate is a little higher here. You know, we say, like, why is an America not doing so well? Part of it is our fault. You know, our population tends to be overweight, more sedentary, couch potatoes. I don't want to generalize, but we we definitely have. You're not wrong. I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair assessment. Well, we talk about data. I think the data would bear you right. Yeah. Bear out. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. We have almost a 30% obesity rate. And quite frankly, that's a high risk with COVID patients. And and I think that is why we have a higher case fatality rate. I don't think it has anything to do with management, which is kind of standardized. But in any case, he got this cocktail of monoclonal antibodies by... um, Regeneron and Lily is working on this. Regeneron, by the way, is headed by uh, a, uh, a colleague, classmate George Hankopoulos uh, from uh, Columbia Medical School. I'm glad you made the distinction that you know we can't all just like copter over to Walter Reed and be like, "Give me everything, give me what you got." Um, but how do we think about it? So, uh, for one, uh, it does show you that in the White House, even though people are tested every day because there's an incubation period Uh, you can be infected and not recover virus from the nasopharynx or from saliva that this is not a hundred percent foolproof approach uh testing people every day whether it's back to school and you know we do need to accept that that it it is uh imperfect no matter how careful you can be and obviously at the white house they're very meticulous and in a close proximity people working together uh really all you need is is one person uh where that test doesn't catch it until they are more uh more viremic where there's more virus there 
So, um, you know, he became symptomatic and really got a cocktail, an unproven, but I think a very intelligent, smart cocktail, um, with not all of those drugs yet FDA approved. You know, one was remdesivir, which is approved for as an antiviral, and we do give those to patients in the hospital. Uh, Dexamethasone which uh, typically is given, you don't want to give that too early because it is a mild as, as a steroid, an immunosuppressant, um, but we do give it to people who are getting more inflammation. So I suspect they were a little concerned about him uh, with blood oxygen or perhaps his x-ray was abnormal. I don't know that, but um, that definitely decreases inflammation. And probably one of the key drugs, uh, which is uh, yet to be approved, uh, monoclonal antibodies, and Regeneron is, is um, one of a couple of companies working on this, and at least with the Regeneron um, system, uh, headed by one of our Columbia PNS alumni, uh, just to put in a plug, um, it, it, these are mice that have a humanized immune system, and monoclonal antibodies are developed to the spike protein, which is the common uh, protein. So even though the virus may mutate, that spike that's typical on the outer shell of the of the virus has has monoclonal antibodies, and that can dramatically reduce. Uh, the amount of virus in the bloodstream and really help the body's own, you know, by time for the virus to be cleared and, and your own uh, uh, immune system clear it. So that, I think, has great potential. You know, the problem, of course, is it's given intravenously, so mm-hmm. you can't just pop a yeah, pill. Yeah, you can't just pop a pill. Right. Right. And and it, it it is yet to be approved, but I think it certainly will be a big uh, addition to the armamentarium. And like many other viruses and drugs, having that combination therapy, an antiviral to reduce viral replication, antibodies immediately, so you don't have to wait for your body to, to develop antibodies. You're given these passive antibodies, which soak up the virus, and then perhaps dexamethasone in some patients. So, you know, this makes sense. I think we're making progress on, on um on treatments, and right. uh, we need to do that until a vaccine arrives, which, again, will probably be very helpful. It may not work in everyone, but, again, as long as we have a 60% effectiveness and as long as we're able to get to more of a herd immunity, um, that should make a big difference, but that's not until spring. Right, exactly. And and as our reporter, our uh, Bob Lingreth, who's got the cover story of the magazine, and he's done a lot of reporting on Gilead and remdesivir, he said, you know, Regeneron only has about 50,000 doses available. And he says, we've got 50,000 cases of the virus popping up every day. So the numbers are not in our favor for even some of the... Um, treatments like that. So it's, it's, it's tricky, Ian, just got about 30 seconds left. Yep. You know, we're making progress. Uh, I think they're going to ramp up. Uh, that's why we have to do what we can do while further therapeutics and vaccines are being developed, which is um, uh, acting smart and we know what to do. And, Wear a mask, uh, social and distancing. <laughs> Absolutely. You got it. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Can I just say it's a story, it's a map, it's a podcast. That's how important this story is. Yeah, it is such incredible work that this guy has been doing throughout the course of the pandemic, although even before, I feel like he shifted effortlessly from telling us everything we needed to know about Hmm. the trade war to everything we needed to know about the economic impact of the pandemic, especially when it comes to 
the embodiment of the K-shaped recovery in a lot of ways, Carol. You know, like he is helping us understand this, I think, through the stories of real people. And this story is no exception. Talk about Sean Donnan. He is senior trade and globalization reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from Maryland. But a lot of this is based on some incredible reporting, Sean, you did in Cleveland. Tell us about what you found, because this is part of a series of stories that really uh, capture what's going on in America. Uh, thanks, Jason. Well, you guys are much too kind. I should just let you guys talk about this story. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're just going to talk about how great you are. You have to tell us about the actual Stop. story. No, go on. <laughs> the, uh, look, I, I think one of the things we've we've been struggling to get our head, heads around as, as people in America right now is this idea of different letter-shaped recoveries. What does a V-shaped recovery mean? What does a K-shaped recovery mean? Are we going to see a W, a Nike swoosh? What, what are we going to see? And wh- what's clear is that we're, we're we're seeing a recovery that is being felt differently depending on where you are on the income ladder, where you are in terms of home ownership, where you are in terms of your ability to work from home, uh, whether you're part of what I've started calling bread-baking America. You know, mm-hmm. that's those of us who are, who are out there learning how to, how to bake sourdough and, and, and have really bought a lot of flour in the last six months, or Breadline America, which is a much sadder place, which is those people who are out there who are struggling with housing security and food insecurity uh, as a result of having lost their their jobs as a result of the pandemic and, and the economic collapse we've we've seen since then. One of the things I set out to look at was the question of housing, and I really was was my head was spinning uh, on this one, and finally I, I settled on the idea of telling it through the story of two different houses. Um, and that really gets at the divide in, in the recovery right now. If you are a homeowner in a suburb of Cleveland called Lakewood, you are seeing demand for properties soar right now. You are seeing property prices soar right now. And we talked to a, uh, a newlywed couple who bought a house on Daleview Drive there, uh, and uh, they ended up being one of half a dozen people who bid for this this, this house within hours of it going online. And they, they have a very happy story to tell. They're two tech workers, and they are, are doing well in life right now. They are working from home, and they've got this brand new home that they're, that they're moving into. On the other side of town, we went to um, the Mount Pleasant neighborhood, and I've been spending some time listening to proceedings in the, the Cleveland Housing Court. And in doing that, uh, I ran across an eviction case involving a woman called Kalei Gavings. Kalei Gavings is a nursing assistant. Uh, she has rented a house uh, in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood uh, for $900 a month. And at one point earlier this year, she was laid off. She fell behind on the rent. When she was back at work, she just wasn't making as much as she used to. And so she ended up in the Cleveland Housing Court, caught up in an eviction crisis. And so these are today these two very different stories that you see at play in the housing market. But then you start scratching the surface of these things, and you discover that actually you can find really the legacy of the last crisis way back in 2008 in the subprime and foreclosure crisis yeah. in the property records that involve uh, Kalei Gavings house and, and, and also just in the diverging paths that you've had between homes in bl- predominantly black neighborhoods in Cleveland and their values and those that you've seen in predominantly 
predominantly white neighborhoods. So it's a recovery that's unequal, but it's also building on the legacy of the last crisis. That's what's so troubling, Sean. And that's what, you know, like you say, whether it was the east side of town or the west side of town, west side being wealthy or east side not so much, where it's mostly black neighborhoods and a high percentage of rental properties, it was already a struggling area, right? And then you layer on the pandemic and it's just gotten, you know, worse again. But it's also, as you said, it was already an area that wasn't able to completely catch its breath from the last crisis. And, you know, when we talk about wealth creation, I think this is a part of it. Like, these groups of people are never given a chance to create any kind of real wealth in their lives. It, it is such a huge part of it, and it has to do with, with, with neighborhood stability in a lot of ways. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the house that Kelly Gavings, and she moved out uh, uh at the end of September, out of this house, but it's owned by uh, an anonymous uh, LLC, a limited liability company that is actually, if you kind of track it down, is uh, a shell company owned by uh, French investors who have flocked into Cleveland uh, to buy up these cheap properties because they're searching for yield. Uh, it, you know, the, the investor who owns that property bought it for $65,000 a year ago. Uh, they're collecting $900 a month in rent on it. That's a gross annual return of like 16%. Mm. It, it almost doesn't matter if the value of the, the house goes up, right? This is a cash flow play for those investors. And on the flip side, you have these, these predominantly white suburbs where you have had pretty steady capital appreciation. This house that we looked at in the neighborhood of Lakewood had actually more than doubled in value in the last eight or nine years. Yeah. And Sean, I feel like, you know, one of the most powerful pieces of your reporting is that you're telling stories that I am sure people in a number of different cities, countless cities across America, and you've been to some of them, you certainly talked to people in a lot of them, this could be their city too. This is not a Cleveland problem. Oh, look, absolutely. It's a problem right here in Washington, D.C. I'm out in the predominantly white suburbs of, of Washington, D.C. I have a very different economic reality from people who are in predominantly black neighborhoods uh, on the other side of the Anacostia River. Uh, it's the same thing in uh, New York. It's mm-hmm. the same thing in, uh, you know, out west. Uh, there is there is an, almost no American city where this kind of unequal recovery isn't the story. Yeah, well... So- can I just, I know we've got, we're running out of time. We could talk a lot more about this, and I highly recommend. I'll put it out on Twitter. I may have already, but I'll do it again because I think it's a must-read. But is there any hope that things change, Sean, in your reporting? We just have about 30, 40 seconds here. Yeah, no, I think one of the really interesting things is what do you do about something like this? And, and part of the problem here is that the policy re- response that's aimed at the broader economy is actually helping accelerate this, right? I mean, the... We know that the Fed pouring money into, into, into markets, lowering interest rates, that lowers mortgage rates. That helps mm-hmm. homeowners and so on. There needs to be some kind of targeting for someone like Kalei Gavings that say that $900 a month needs to go into building equity right. in the home rather than simply going to rent that is helping uh, an, an offshore investor who has no interest in that neighborhood beyond uh, cash flow and return. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, I mean, the whole, the wealth gap is so apparent, uh, and that's a big part of it. All right, Sean Donnan, thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, Your reporting, it is must-read as always. So check out this story. It's in the new double issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, available on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com. It's also featured in the Stephanomics podcast with 
uh, our colleague Stephanie Flanders. So get that wherever you get your podcast. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So we talked about her yesterday. She is the subject of a story in the magazine, which reveals how she is the economist that's become a pandemic sensation by helping stressed out parents. Uh, And we've talked with her before. In today's Business Week Economics, we're so delighted, excited to have back with us Emily Oster, author and professor of economics at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. She's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and she joins us on the phone from Providence, Rhode Island. Um, Emily, we really are delighted. We had a great conversation with Esme Deprez, who wrote this great story about you that really gets into your background and, and also the impact you're having on our world today, especially parents, which we'll talk about in a moment. But talk to us about kind of how you grew up and, and, and how you got to where you are today, because I feel like economics is in your bones, your blood, your genetic makeup. No, it's, it's totally right. So thank you guys for having me. And I'm like incredibly grateful to Esme for having written um, this article. It's sort of always a little bit nerve wracking to read about yourself. And, but um, I think she just, I was so happy with it. Um, so yeah, I grew up, my, both of my parents are economists. That's probably the most salient piece of information. So I have two economist parents. I'm actually married to an economist. So I'm sort of like steeped from, from birth more or less in, in the idea of using economics for decision making and in your household. And so how does that help you maybe think of it differently, you know, in the sense that if you're kind of living and breathing it all the time, if it really is sort of baked into your very uh, being, do you think that maybe you naturally think a different way than other people do? I'm not sure. I'm not totally sure, but I do think that there's a sense in which you sort of grow up with a way of approaching problems. And, um, you know, and with like, sometimes they tell a story like my my mom didn't want to grocery shop uh, when I was a kid. I said, you know, why don't we go grocery shopping like everyone else? Why are you ordering groceries? And you said, well, I have a very high opportunity cost of my time. (laughs) And, you know, and I feel like for me, I was like, oh, we were like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, and I think, but I think for like, for a lot of people, that would be like, what, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, how do you like to pick up like, you know, a pack of gum if you're not at the you know, grocery store having those opportunities? I mean, no, it's no just... I mean, I think as a kid, it's like, where, like, how was I going to get to negotiate over the sugary peanut butter if we were just ordering on online? <laughs> Painful. But 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 at the same time, like that that notion of learning opportunity cost, though, mm-hmm. and thinking about it is a really um Kind of intriguing one because if you it, it, it it's funny you say that because I've actually um, I guess sort of showing my predilections as well I've actually had that conversation with my I've talked about opportunity cost with with my teenagers and I do think that it once you start to look at that at the world through a lens like that it's hard to then not look at it that way right. Yeah, I think it's very hard to turn it off. And I think sometimes, you know, it's good that I'm married to another economist because I'm not sure that I could turn it off. And I think that for some people, this approach feels like really sort of foreign and odd. And it's like, what what kind of argument is that for, you know, well, I don't, you know, I don't feel like I should have to load the dishwasher because it's not my comparative advantage. That isn't an argument that like, works as well if your spouse is not uh, also also an economist. (laughs) 
Oh my God. I studied economics and I don't know if I, if I tried that at home, I think my whole family would just be like, yeah, we're done. We're done. I've heard enough stories <laughs> exactly. about your family, exactly. Carol, that, yeah, that would not have worked. It's not going to work. No, but it is interesting, especially, you know, you know, fast forward a little bit, like we are in such a data centric world, right? And I think about, there is so much data out there for us to assess situations in kind of a rational economic analytic way and and that might help us get through some of the noise that's really hard to get through especially if you think about something like a pandemic yeah i mean i think you know as as i have been trying to to do more sort of talking to to a lay audience both in the pandemic and even and even before i sort of i really rely on data and for me sort of seeing things in the data is is really useful and it is like a key input to decision making. Although one of the things I've realized is that it can be very hard for people, say, who do not spend their whole childhood discussing data, uh, to kind of uh, like put data in there in, in a way that is helpful for making decisions as opposed to just being sort of numbers that, that come out at you. And I think that some of the challenge is really like how do we put these numbers in a context where people can actually use them, use them as opposed to just see them and kind of not quite understand how to fit them in their decision-making. I think that's, right. that's kind of the key of economics. So talk to us about some of the examples, because you've really connected with a very, very broad audience and an audience that normally would really shy away from, you know, thinking about things through this framework. So give us, an exa- give us one of the good examples where people who aren't as schooled in this go, oh, okay, I got it. I mean, I, I think that, the, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing that people sort of is at a ha moment for me when I try to explain risk to people is I talk about cars. So people are sort of have a lot of like, I don't want to take that risk. I don't want to take that risk. And sometimes I'll be like, well, do you ever get in a car? And they're like, oh, I see. You know, and I think that yeah. angle of sort of saying like, oh, actually, I am taking some of these risks. It must be that I am willing to adopt some risk. Let me now frame other things in that. I think that is often a moment of like, huh, I see what you're saying. So, Emily, let's get down to the brass tacks of parenting during this pandemic. It is brutal for a lot of people. I mean, I have teenagers and a two and a half year old, and I feel like I'm actually in pretty good shape because the older ones are self-sufficient and the two and a half year old's just adorable and, you know, kind of living her best life amid all of this. But I do feel like... For people, especially with school age kids, sort of elementary school kids who are also trying to work, this is really, really difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think the spring was really hard. And then sort of going into the fall, um, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying that her six-year-old is expected to be on Zoom from 830 to 330 <sighs> with a 30-minute break yeah. um, doing, you know, Zoom. That's first insane. Grade. That's really tough. That's yeah. crazy. It's bad. hard for the kids, really hard for the parents. So, so how so do you? What do we do? Yeah, because I mean, this is like parents have been looking to you to like for for kind of guidance on this whole school thing. Yeah, and I think that you know, it's sort of at some point, I realized that it was very hard to give that guidance without data, and we mm-hmm. didn't have uh, good data. And so, you know, one of the big pandemic projects I've been trying to to do is to try to actually collect some data on um, on schools. And as I talk a little bit about that in the, in the piece, but we've, you know, got some, we've now got in some data. We're starting to, you know, work with schools, try to collect COVID tracking data over time to really look at, you know, what are the risks? And then I think even in the next few weeks, being able to look at, you know, what are the, what are the kind of mitigation practices that schools are taking that are helping them keep cases down? 
so we can help places reopen because I think that has really got to be our goal is to get especially younger kids back in school. Well, what is the data showing when it comes to schools? Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was, we were talking about real estate earlier, and it's always location, location, location. And I feel like even with the virus, to some extent, it's location, location, location. Um, that, you know, every school system, every city, every town is not going to be, every state is not going to be the same. But I'm curious what your data is showing when it comes to all of this. Yeah, so I think our data in general is showing, you know, fairly low rates. Um, so we actually have, um, you know, a bunch of geographic coverage. And for, you know, in-person school, we're seeing... Over the last two weeks of September, um, you know, in the average school of 1,000 kids, we're seeing about 1.5 cases. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, not no cases, but, but you know, relatively low, um, low rates. And, uh, and you know, the, the rates are much lower in elementary than high school in the data that we're seeing so far. So it certainly seems like there's kind of a stronger argument maybe for bringing back younger kids than older kids. Yeah. So, Emily, when you think about this from a broader perspective, you know, a lot of it, we talk about this on this program all the time, this notion that kids being back at school is a critical part of the broader economic equation in terms of really getting the economy back to some sense of normalcy for, you know, blue collar workers, white collar workers, for the whole workforce. How how do you attack that problem or how do you get your arms around this notion of measuring the either the loss of productivity or whatever it is with kids being at home as it plays through the the workforce and the and the broader employment picture? Yeah, so I think there's sort of two things to say about that. So, so the, probably the, the most direct way to see those kind of impacts is to look at the labor force numbers, um, which I think came out last week, where you see basically huge drops in labor force participation. Like labor force participation overall was down about a million um, in, in prime age adults, and it's almost all of that is among women. Um, yeah. So I think we're really seeing a lot of women leave the labor force, presumably because there are these additional caregiving obligations at home. But I also think we're, we're framing this as somehow like it's the economy versus health and we need to open schools mm-hmm. for the economy and like let, you know, the health throw caution to the wind on health. But I actually think it's, there's also real significant health issues, depression, anxiety, mental health, food insecurity. There are reasons that we want kids in school that have nothing to do with, you know, we've got to get our economy going. Mm. Right. There's an, I mean, there's also you do wonder what happens to kids, right? Developmentally. Um, And education wise for some of those critical years, if they're not in school with peers. No. And I think that, you know, there's, there's learning losses, there's socio-emotional development losses. um, There's, you know, dropouts. I mean, I think we're going to see the impacts of this on, of this on kids, you know, basically forever. Yeah. And I know, like, I know some of the positions you've taken haven't always been <laughs> well received by lots of people. I know Esme gets into, you know, what kind of pushback have you gotten? So I think on the, you know, on the school stuff, um, you know, the, the position that we need more data is something I think many people agree with. Um, but, you know, I also, um, I, I have taken the position that we should be reopening at least more than we, than we have been. And I think there, you know, there is pushback there. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes, you know, you have to sort of think about like this argument is grounded in, in data um, and yeah. we can have an argument on the merits. Um, I think it's really important. And Reese yeah. Witherspoon says she likes what you're doing. I'm convinced she's going to play you in a miniseries on Netflix. Can I just put that out there? 
That would be amazing, um, <laughs> but I doubt it. Uh, but no, I, I, uh, I've gotten. There's been my life is is a little bit different in some in some of those dimensions than it than it was maybe five years ago. It is time for the drive to the close. Let's check in with Brad McMillan. He is the chief investment officer, managing principal for Commonwealth Financial Network. Johnny's on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. Brad, how is life in lovely New England? It's a nice time of year, right? It, this is the time to live in New England. The sun right. is out. The trees are changing. From a, from a weather perspective, life is good. Yeah, but otherwise, things are a little uh, topsy-turvy. They remain so. I feel like, you know, we talked to you a, a month or two ago, and what's different now? I mean, we're much closer to an election, which seems to be very much front of mind for investors. Um, we have a back and forth and a back and forth and a back and forth on stimulus, which certainly is top of mind as well. What's top of mind for you? I'm watching a couple of things. I'm watching the pandemic. I mean, we've seen... We saw things get better, get worse, get better, and now they're getting worse again, and the risks are rising. And obviously, we've got the risk coming up with the election. There's some real concerns there. And we're looking at the economic recovery start to slow down. And what's perverse about all this is the market has pretty much kept moving up. And what I've come to the conclusion is the worse things get, the better they are for the market because investors are now thinking about the stimulus. It's kind of like when bad news was good news because it meant the Fed was going to cut rates. I think we have the same kind of anticipated policy rally now that we saw then. Hmm. So what do you do right now as an investor? What's your advice to investors? Well, it depends. I mean, if you're an older person or somebody who's going to need the money in the next couple of years, Maybe now is the time to start thinking a little bit more cautiously. What's but what's older you, nowadays? I, I am curious about that too, Brad. Because I think no, seriously. I mean, people are are working a lot longer. Um, some because they have to, some because they want to and can. Um, and I just do wonder what you know the old formulas about asset allocation and age. I do wonder what's different nowadays. Well, I'm 55, so from my perspective, I'm going to be working at least another 10 years. I don't really consider myself to be an older investor, but if I was really looking to retire in the next five years or so, that's when I might start to think of myself in the, quote, older, unquote, context as an investor. I start paying more attention to avoiding losses than maximizing gains. I think that's probably the best way to think about it. Are you looking to maximize your gains? Are you at the point where you're really looking to make sure you don't lose too much? That's where you get older from an investment standpoint. Brad, what do you think about the election as it plays into an investment thesis at this point? Because I feel like in past uh, times, in the before times, as it were, you know, we look at an election and say, hey, okay, election's going to happen. We're going to know who the president is, you know, within maybe a few hours, certainly a day, or in the case of 2000, a couple weeks, a few weeks. But it feels like there isn't that certainty for people right now. Does it change the way you invest at all, or do you just kind of hang on tight? It shouldn't. It shouldn't change it at all. And the reason I say that is you're right. We're going to see a lot of volatility. Markets are expecting November to be pretty tough. And, you know, I agree with that. And it might well extend beyond that. But are we going to be thinking about that next year at this time? I don't God, think I so. hope not. So, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, it's like even if it's a monumental disaster, and I'm not saying it will be, it will pass. 
you know, as of Inauguration Day, the existing president will leave office and the new president will be inaugurated. We don't know who that is. There are procedures in place and we'll get through it. It's going to be ugly, quite possibly, but this too will pass. Yeah, you know, listen, I, you know, we know, it's right. good perspective. We will get through these things. We've gotten through tough things before. We certainly will get on the other side of this. The one thing I do wonder that when we do get on the other side of it, these systemic problems, these gaps within our society, you know, we talk a lot about wealth creation and, and we had a great story, you know, by our Sean Donnan, troubling story, you know, uh, in Cleveland, you know, Ohio about, you know, depending on where you are, you're either doing really well and, 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 and or you're not. And it tends to be minorities who are not, they can't own property, they just don't have the wealth to do it. Uh, and it really tells kind of that bigger, broader story in the country. I bring this up because, Brad, I mean, ultimately, the economy, society as a whole benefits when everybody benefits. I mean, I think about what you do, right? The more people who are in the markets or who need financial advice, that's good for you guys longer term. So I do wonder how you think about that, how you think about how what we need to do to improve it so that there are more people that are able to actually create wealth in this country and that it's not just concentrated in a few hands. Totally agree, Carol. And if you look at it as a citizen, I couldn't agree with you more. As an economist, I also agree with you, because the truth of the matter is the most economically healthy society is where purchasing power, the ability to spend and invest, is spread the most widely. So it's enlightened self-interest to say this is a problem we have to solve. And the political system, you can see, you know, we get these generational shifts, and my guess would be this election or the next one, we will start to do exactly that. We're going to see a focus on younger people, less affluent people. You know, I think the tax structure will probably eventually look more like it did in the 1950s. You know, the labor laws will look more like they did in the 1950s. We've, we've had a more equal society. We can yeah. do it again. That's a really interesting point. That's a really interesting point. All right. Brad McMillan, thank you so much. Nice to catch up with you. Always so thoughtful. Chief Investment Officer, Managing Principal at Commonwealth Financial Network. Joining us on the phone from Waltham. And a programming note for all of our listeners. Jason Kelly, my partner in crime, my co-host here at Bloomberg Business Week. He is leaving our family, but not really leaving the Bloomberg family. That's exactly right, Carol. I am headed over to be the Chief Correspondent for Quick Take. It is our over-the-top network launching on November 9th, so I'll still be around, and I won't go too far. But it has been a massive pleasure working on the show and working on this podcast. We're so humbled, I think it's fair to say, Carol, by all the listener support that we've gotten, the fun conversations we've gotten mm-hmm. to have, and I know you will continue to do that better and better and better going forward. We love our audience, and they have really shaped who we want to talk to and who we bring in, so we thank you so much for that. And Jason, I can't even tell you how much I will miss you. Um, I think you know, though. Um, for everybody else, our podcast uh, audience, we'll see you here next week.